Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to one of our weekly messages. We hope that these messages help you grow closer in your relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're thinking about attending ACC, we are currently holding one service at 25% capacity on Sundays. You can sign up through our website, anacortischristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S Christian.church. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like where we are located, our core beliefs, or if you'd like to get in contact with us. We would love to hear from you. So whether you're sitting, driving, or exercising, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. Series on the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, and the context is that Jesus has been announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. Okay, that that the future reality that will be eternally um, the reality is invading and breaking into our world right now. And so, to live under the rule and reign of God is to live today in His kingdom. And so, it is to live today as a picture of what that eternity is going to look like, right? And to bring that to bear into our world today. So what does that mean? Well, he gives a Sermon on the Mount as kind of his kingdom manifesto. It's kind of parallel to the book of Exodus, God coming down on Mount Sinai and giving his first set of terms for his covenant relationship with his people. It's all about relationship with Israel and the world. Like marriage vows, God had said, I'm going to make you my own people, my special people in the world. And like a marriage, you're going to take my name on yourself. And you're going to represent me to the rest of the world, right? And so Jesus, in this section of the teaching, he's kind of contrasting those old uh, laws that God had given at that time. And he says, I'm not abolishing those laws and bringing them to fulfillment. In other words, rather than just a list of rules that you're supposed to abide by, there's something in the heart that will cause these kingdom people to intrinsically be fulfilling the intent of God's law in order to be able to live rightly in the world and in relationship with God. So this week's topic is a, is a tough one. It's a topic of divorce, adultery, and remarriage. <clears throat> and I have to admit, I was not excited about this topic, and it's a bit of a tough one. What Jesus says uh, seems on the surface to be very hard to accept, but I just want to tell you right off the bat, there's more to the story. And Jewish readers would be picking up on the backstory that isn't very obvious in our English Bibles. Nor is our understanding of divorce today exactly the same as what it was back then. So it does raise all kinds of questions, and I knew I would have to hunt down the answers to all these questions. And I, I also want to acknowledge there's still a lot of divided opinion on this. It's not crystal clear. So uh, you're going to have to wrestle with it a bit on your own. I also just want to acknowledge that maybe if you're like me and you, didn't, uh, you haven't experienced divorce or you didn't grow up in a house with a divorce you know, parent or family, um, you might think, well, this is like, how does this apply to my life? How is this relevant to me? And I just want to encourage you to stick with it because through it, you're going to see the heart of God for his people and even for divorced people. And, and that should bring us to a, a, a place of worship in, to, to God. And um, I think it is relevant. And I think you'll see that if you hang with me through the end. So let's look at Matthew 
And we're also going to look not only at Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus talks about this, but also Matthew 19, because the fuller picture is kind of spelled out in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 through 9. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, and then I'm going to jump right into Matthew 19. Matthew 5. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Chapter 19. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Would you pause and pray with me? Father, I know there are some here with uh, raw, raw feelings, uh, raw emotions, just under the surface because of what they've experienced. And there's a lot of perhaps, are you telling me? And I just pray, Lord, right now for peace of mind for everyone that through this, we would really see your heart here. And it would draw us perhaps to repentance perhaps to um, a state of reassurance, more than anything, to know how you love us and to love you in return. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let me just give you a rundown of the basic line of reasoning here, and then we'll break it down even further. Okay, it's important to identify what Jesus is saying and what he isn't saying. Okay? And the question that's being asked is, is it lawful? Okay, is it lawful? That's the question. There's a division going on. This is the back story. We'll get into it in a little bit later. But there's a division between two schools of thought regarding when it was okay to divorce someone, under what conditions, and and when it wasn't. And so the Pharisees, they're coming up to Jesus, and they want to trap him. And they're basically saying, so whose side do you agree with? Do you agree that it's okay under any and every uh, circumstance? Or do you agree with the other side? And Jesus, he does answer the question, but he also sidesteps the matter. He comes back to the heart, which is what he's been doing the whole time, hasn't he? Right? The Pharisees are basically saying, does the law command divorce for this set of reasons or for these set of reasons? Jesus says, the law doesn't command divorce. (laughs) 
Uh, now, on the law a little bit. Remember what we've been saying. It's not just a, a list of check boxes of what you can or can't do. It's God's prescription for how to live in his kingdom as image-bearing people who bear his name almost as a spouse to the nations, right? Like taking a last name almost and saying, I belong to this identity, this household. It's a people who reflect God to the nations. That's the kingdom of God. How does divorce fit into reflecting God's nature to the world? It doesn't. That's what, that's what he's saying, okay? Where does he go? He says, look, God made marriage. God didn't make divorce. That wasn't part of the plan. God commanded that the two shall become one flesh. He never commanded divorce, Marriage comes from God. Divorce doesn't. Divorce comes from man because we're broken and sinful people. Okay, so the Pharisees, quoting Deuteronomy 24, Ah, but Moses commanded that a man give his wife with a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus says, no, he didn't. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but that's not God's original plan. Okay? And so remember, Jesus, he's fulfilling Jeremiah 31, which says there's a day coming when I'll have a new covenant, a new relationship with my people, and all my, my laws will be written on their hearts, right? They'll be fulfilled intrinsically in the heart, not externally through, you know, coercion. So the question all along isn't, when is it okay, under what conditions can I get a divorce? What Jesus is exposing is the heart in God's kingdom is, would never be, when can I get a divorce? It would always be looking at marriage, right? It would, it, the, the heart condition in God's kingdom would never need to ask that question in the first place. That's what he's trying to expose, okay? So, specifically also at the end, Jesus returns to a quote from Deuteronomy 24, and the gist is, a marriage that is ended for the wrong reasons is not a legitimate divorce in God's eyes because he's the one who made them one. And no one can do anything about that. Therefore, a remarriage in that situation is adultery because in God's sight, the original marriage was not invalidated. So, there is permissible divorce. Jesus alluded to it, but it isn't good. Okay, it's not part of the kingdom. Now, now, let's talk. Let's break this down because there's all kinds of questions here. Um, and I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is outline the rest of our talk by going through these questions. First, are there no conditions for which divorce is acceptable, as Jesus seems to imply? Second, what about a situation in which one spouse didn't want the divorce and fought for the marriage, but the other spouse was unrelenting? Or third, what if I've been divorced and I find someone else? Am I forbidden to remarry? And then, of course, the big question, what about abuse? And what about an abusive situation? Is the spouse not free to leave that situation? And finally, is there any hope for me if I've failed in this area? How does God see me? Okay. So first, recall... Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law. 
For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I take this to mean if we find some continuity or discontinuity between what we see in the Old Testament, the Torah, and what Jesus is saying here, then we're probably not seeing the whole picture through the right lens. Okay? Jesus is saying none of it is invalid, and yet he says what he says. So we have to figure out how this is fitting together. What is he speaking to? Okay? What are the grounds for divorce in the Bible? In the Bible, marriage is a covenant made between two people and God, and it's based upon vows. Vows that two people make to solidify a safe covenant relational environment for two people to love and to trust each other and to thrive in life. If the marriage covenant is destroyed, a spouse can be sent out. In essence, a certificate of divorce can be given if the marriage is a sham in the first place. Okay? Uh, Exodus 21 kind of gives the basis for this. It's actually technically speaking about if a person... now. This isn't condoning polygamy. It was later pretty much condemned. But in a world where polygamy happens, uh, this is talking about a situation where somebody marries a slave woman and then later finds, a, you know, a wife probably under better circumstances with a dowry and all that stuff and marries her as well. This is given as a protection for the first wife. Okay, here's what it says. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights, okay? If he does not provide her with these things, she is to go free without any payment of money. So, these three grounds became the basis for Jewish marriage vows. One, to provide food for one another. Two, to clothe one another. And three, to love one another, marital rights, okay? So there's a fourth, but it's kind of unspoken. The fourth would be unfaithfulness, adultery. The reason it's not listed is because the penalty for that is not divorce, but death. Okay? So here are the vows. Uh, here are actually some actual vows preserved from ancient marriage certificates of the time. Very romantic. I will feed you and clothe you, and I will bring you into my house by means of your ketubah, and I owe you 400 denarii, together with the due amount of your food and your clothes and your bed. Okay, wonderful. Uh, in time, the wording became a little more formal and ceremonial. I undertake to esteem, honor, and nourish, provide for, and clothe, etc., etc. And... These vows, these conditions are quoted in uh, Ezekiel. They're quoted in Ephesians, talking about Jesus as a bridegroom with his bride, the church, promising to nourish and to cherish, to love, to feed, uh, to clothe, basically. The words uh, to, to, uh, to cherish actually means to clothe warmly. Um, so, so it's spoken of Jesus and his church. Okay, so... If a person repeatedly suffered neglect in these areas, to provide clothing, to provide food, to provide love, and obviously to be faithful to one another, there was cause to ask for a certificate of divorce. 
Okay? We're going to get into more, with, more on what that actually means. Um, now, Jesus had said, what did he say? He said, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But this is not the way it was from the beginning. What is a hard heart? Okay, this does not mean because people are sinful and they sometimes just can't make it work. Okay, a hard heart always means, it always refers to someone who is unrelenting in their disobedience to God or in their going against his will and there is no sign of repenting, of repentance and there is no sign of change. So Pharaoh, God gives him chance after chance, plague after plague to let the people go but his heart was hardened and he wouldn't give in. Okay? Um, it speaks of God's people this way when they continually give themselves um, and prostitute themselves to other gods. It says their hearts are hard. Their hearts are stubborn. Okay, so a hardened heart is someone who repeatedly, time after time, breaks their vows over and over with no repentance and no sign of change. Here's the passage in Deuteronomy that's under dispute here. And you're going to notice some things about it. It says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and that word for indecency, it's, it's literally like some nakedness of a thing. Okay, and they usually interpret it as sexual immorality of some kind. It wouldn't be adultery, because this is right after saying anyone caught in adultery gets put to death. Um, but he's saying if he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her, and she must not be a super person, I don't know, um, or he's just not a great guy, I don't know, but, and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Now, notice a few things here. This is what the Pharisees are quoting to Jesus, right? First of all, this passage isn't about commanding divorce for something indecent. It's using a case study example as a means to prohibit marriage to an original spouse after the wife has already married or, and divorced someone else. Now, why is that a problem? No one really knows for sure. It could be a couple things. It could be because there were cases where a husband would actually pimp his wife out and to do it legally, according to the letter of the law, he could divorce her, give her a certificate, a certificate of divorce. She could go and have a short-term marriage with another person, and then that person could divorce her, and then she could come back to her husband again. This is actually written in, in some of uh, some rules about Islam in certain places. That may or may not be the reason. It certainly prevented people from doing that, from taking marriage and divorce likely and just using people that way. Uh, another commentary proposed that it has to do with the one flesh union and that after marriage you're, you're like family, you're like kin and so a remarriage after a second marriage would be like incest, like taking someone who you're related to. I don't know. That seems weird to me. I don't really know the answer. I don't have it. 
But so far, what are the biblical grounds for divorce? It's if someone repeatedly and unrepentantly breaks the marriage covenant, the vows for food, clothing, love, and marital fidelity, then there is a way for the person to be released from the marriage. What about remarriage, then? Does Jesus forbid all remarriage after divorce? Well, that's an interesting one because the, the idea, what a certificate of divorce is, is a, peeper, a piece of paper that says, you are now free to go and marry whoever you choose. Okay, so there's some discrepancy in the language here. All right, so, so a certificate of divorce isn't like a legal paper that says you are now divorced. It literally, we have surviving divorce certificates from this time. Um, it is a paper that says, uh, in fact, here's one verbatim. You are free on your part to go and become the wife of any Jewish man that you wish. And this is to be for you, uh, from me, a writ of divorce and a get of release. Without the certificate, a divorced woman, or man for that matter, might not be able to remarry because there would be a stigma attached. Why wouldn't he write her a certificate? Clearly she's not innocent. I don't know if I want anything to do with that, right? The certificate declared the person innocent and eligible for remarriage. Okay, it's getting confusing, right? Uh, one quote from David Instone Brewer. I'm going to quote from him a lot because he has written extensively on this. In theory, the rabbis said only a man can write the certificate, and he has to write it voluntarily. So the rabbis ruled that if a woman has sufficient grounds for a divorce, they will beat the man with sticks until he volunteers to write a divorce certificate for the woman. We actually, the only two divorce certificates we have surviving from this um, time period are one from a man and one from a woman. So we actually know that women um, gave certificates of divorce as well. Here's a little definition from the word study dictionary of the New Testament that I have. It's equivalent to a certificate of innocence because the husband who was instructed to issue it is divorcing his guiltless wife and sending her away from his house uh, he was, in fact, the guilty person. If the woman had committed fornication, she would have been dismissed and never permitted to remarry, as this woman was. And when she is departed out of the house, she may go and be another man's wife. Deuteronomy 24.2. In fact, the guilty, um, the guilty dismissed spouse was to be stoned to death, which was rarely, if ever, practiced. The divorce certificate then was supposed to give, be given by a guilty husband to an innocent wife or vice versa, whom he or she would want, wanted to dismiss since it was through such a certificate of innocence that the dismissed one had the possibility of remarrying. So the whole point was to protect the rights of the dismissed person and make sure that she or he was not taken advantage of. The bride's dowry also had to be returned and the certificate ensured that her reputation wasn't tarnished for possible remarriage. So, what does Jesus mean then when he says that anyone who divorces his wife and remarries commits adultery? Most likely, Jesus is referring to a specific argument about divorce that I've alluded to earlier. And the argument goes like this. This is the actual recorded debate in like the Jewish rabbis, Mishnahs, or something like that. It says... The school of Shammai, Shammai says, 
A man should not divorce his wife except for indecency found in her, since it says, for he found in her an indecency cause. The school of Hillel says, even if she spoiled her dinner, since it says, any cause. Okay, so you've got two schools of thought and basically they're taking this little clause that's a case study incident that has nothing to do with anything Moses is actually commanding about, he says, if he finds some indecent thing about her. Uh, what they're doing is they're breaking this down and they're saying, does it mean um, if he finds sexual immorality in her or are they breaking the words, or they're breaking the words apart and saying, some indecency or any cause. Okay, in other words, any reason to find a reason for divorce. And the Hillelites, which the Pharisees mostly ascribed to, loved this idea. It gave them a lot of freedom to divorce whoever they wanted. When the two groups came to ask Jesus' opinion, they're asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? The question is, are they asking... Are there any grounds whatsoever for which it is lawful to get divorced? Or are they asking, does the any cause divorce agree with the law? <laughs> At the time, everyone agreed that divorce was allowable. That wasn't even a question. So the, the debate is about the any cause divorce. And the Shemaites, who were the minority, agreed with reading Deuteronomy at face value, nothing except indecency. So you might say that was their slogan. So, we can hear it properly asked of Jesus, is it lawful to divorce for any cause? And Jesus answers with the Shemaite slogan, nothing except indecency. Okay, uh, indecency is kind of the same as porneia, sexual immorality, as the Hebrew word there. So he finally answers, the any cause divorce is invalid. So remarriage is therefore adultery in that case. This implies that any cause divorces are human inventions and therefore invalid. So anyone who has an any cause divorce isn't actually divorced in God's eyes. They're still married. So if they remarry after an any cause divorce, they're committing adultery. So what would Jesus then say about a divorce that comes over repeated neglect of food, clothing, love, or infidelity, which all Jews accepted, what does Jesus say about that? Well, it's hard to know whether he's talking about that at all, whether that's even coming up in the conversation, okay? You're going to have to wrestle with that one a bit. Um, or is he just refuting a particular view on divorce and remarriage? But what we can know is this. Jesus is a lot more interested in talking about marriage than he is talking about divorce. He says, if they had a proper view of marriage, most divorces would never happen. And marriage isn't just a human contract. God is involved and he joins them together. Therefore, no one should break the covenant by breaking the marriage vows. And so this is the question. Is a marriage broken by divorce or is a marriage broken by the repeated breaking of the vows that define the covenant that they've created? Um, a certificate of divorce in the latter case is really just calling it what it is. It's already a sham. 
that's not God's will. But I would err on the side of saying that it's not God's will for people, for the letter of the law's sake, to keep living in a sham. Now that doesn't mean go look for a way out, because where Jesus goes with this is, look, if you're asking the question, looking for a way out, your heart's not really in the right place in the first place. Okay, let's turn our attention to marriage. That's what he does. Now, let's get to this question. What about abuse? Okay, remember what he says, hardness of heart. Divorce has been allowed because your hearts were hard. That is to say, the marriage covenant is repeatedly and unrepentantly broken. Abuse is an extreme form of neglect for marriage vows. The vow to clothe, to love, to provide food for. Abuse is way downstream from there. Okay, uh, this is from Paul Carter who wrote an article in the Gospel Coalition in Canada. He writes, the Bible commands all Christians to be gentle in their dealings with one another and it tells husbands to be understanding towards their wives and to treat them with special honor. Therefore, all forms of physical, emotional, verbal, and sexual abuse would be forbidden. Physical abuse is a sin and should be named as such by pastors, elders, and counselors. It's also worth noting that the Bible disqualifies abusive men from serving in leadership positions within the church. First Timothy 3, Paul says, If anyone inspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, down the road, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, etc. The Greek literally says, not a striker. Okay, a man who hit his wife was disqualified from serving as an elder in the church. And to state the obvious, saved and sanctified men don't abuse their wives. Okay, therefore, physical abuse is a sin and it disqualifies a person from serving in leadership in a church. And it's also against the law. Okay, so if you are in a position right now, and I'm just going to speak to you, if you are in an abusive relationship that has continually been that way, and you are not physically safe, um, we can talk about working on the marriage, but you need to get out. Okay, you need to be safe. You need to get into another environment immediately. Secondly, you need to talk to someone. You need to call the police, and you need to talk to your church leaders about this. Okay, now, if you are a person who is abusing someone else physically, Listen, what you're doing is wrong. And if you keep trying to hide this, obviously there's, there's bigger problems, there's bigger issues, okay? But if you are manipulating a woman to keep quiet, if you are trying to convince yourself that it can change, listen, the best thing you can possibly do is put up the white flag and face the music and repent, okay? This is the only way you can save what God intended for your marriage is to repent and come clean and to talk to someone about it and to seek the appropriate help, okay? Your spouse has the right to leave, but 
If you go, if you do this, they may stay. You may be able to rescue this. Okay? But if you do not come clean, if you do not repent, if you do not change this situation somehow, then the environment you're in should not continue as it is. Okay? It has to change. All right? I just want you to be a big enough human being to have the guts and the courage to acknowledge that and to do something about it. David Instone Brewer says, when Jesus said no one should break a marriage asunder, what did he mean? Did he mean no one should break their marriage vows which cause a divorce, or did he mean that no one should enact the legal process of a divorce? Was Jesus condemning the unfaithful or abusive partner who causes the divorce, or was he condemning the wronged partner who says, I can't live in this environment anymore after they've done everything? The partner who concludes, like God did, that their partner will never stop sinning. So the marriage, which is a sham, should be publicly exposed as such and ended. David Instone Brewer concludes that Jesus isn't contradicting the law of Moses. He affirms it as saying Moses permitted it for hardness of heart, meaning repeatedly breaking the marriage covenant. And Jesus doesn't say, but I say differently. So if there's continuity there, then there has to be some understanding of this. Now, how does God feel about divorced people? First of all, God understands. God, if you failed in this area and you know, man, I left my spouse and I'm going to be honest, I just wanted to go find my smile. If you know that what you have done is you've left someone and you've um, committed adultery by remarrying someone else, or if you've been on the other side especially and you're the victim of a spouse who keeps breaking their covenant with you, first what you need to know is God understands. God understands what it is to live through a failed marriage because he himself did. This might shock you. God has been divorced. He divorced Israel, his bride. Jeremiah 3, 1 through 2, If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me, declares the Lord? Look up to the barren heights and see, is there any place where you have not been ravished? By the roadside you sat waiting for lovers, sat like a nomad in the desert. You have defiled the land with your prostitution and wickedness. And then verse 8, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. This, by the way, is the depiction of God's judgment. To say, okay, you are free to go and marry anyone you want. To call it like it is. Because it was broken and broken and broken and broken and there was no repentance and there was no sign of return. 
Ezekiel 16, 15 through 19 says, But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by it, and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him, and he possessed your beauty. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourself you made for yourself male idols engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes and put on them, to put on them. And you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the flour, olive oil, and honey I gave you to eat, you offered as a fragrant incense before them. That is what happened, declares the sovereign Lord. Notice the marriage vows in here. God gives her love, clothing, adornments, fine food, all of it. She turns around and prostitutes all of it out and gives it to her other lovers. God forgave her many times and tried to get her to repent, but she kept on sinning until there was nothing left but divorce. So when God says in Malachi that he hates divorce, he isn't speaking in anger necessarily towards people who just get divorced. He speaks as one who has been through it, who has walked through it. I hate being a divorcee. I hate it. When Jesus... Oh, I already, I already said that. Okay. So, God understands because he's been through it. Now, how does God feel if you're there and you're like, I'm, I'm a failure? Okay, I, I don't think I qualified. You know, I went for a no-fault divorce or whatever and it wasn't a great situation, but maybe we could have resolved it. How does God feel about divorced people? I want to turn your attention to the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. And we won't have a lot of time to go into this, but you probably know the story. If you don't, Jesus is traveling. They go through Samaria, which was kind of unheard of because the Samaritans were half-breeds in the first place, okay? They weren't, they were, they polluted their Judaism with other religion. They had their, their, they were bitter rivals with the Jews. We worship on this mountain. You guys worship on that mountain. And even to cross a Samaritan person's shadow would make a Jewish person unclean. So, Jesus goes to a well in the middle of the day. His disciples go off to get food. And Jesus meets there a Samaritan woman getting water in the middle of the day at this well. And he talks to her. Now, this is scandalous. Okay, you don't talk alone with a woman alone, right? Uh, she's, at, she's in the middle of the day. That's not when women usually gathered water. She's trying to be avoided. Okay? And they strike up a conversation. Now, here's what's interesting about this story that I learned when we studied John. If you were a Jewish person reading this story, the scandal would be that you'd start to pick up on repeated language from the Old Testament about what happens when men meet women at wells. Okay? Jacob and Rachel. Isaac and Rebekah. Moses and Zipporah. They all met at wells. And there's a lot of repeat information. With Isaac and Rebecca, if she offers you a drink of water, 
Jesus talks about you would have offered me a drink of water if you knew the gift of God that was being offered to you. Uh, Rachel, in the middle of the day, the heat of the day, just like this woman. Uh, both of them go back to tell um, the family or the village all these things that have been told to them. Just like the Samaritan woman leaves to go to the village to tell everyone all these things that Jesus has revealed to her. So there's a pattern here, and it's intentional. And so the question you'd be starting to ask as you're going through this story is, are we being introduced to the new matriarch of God's chosen people? The new woman who is going to carry on the lineage and legacy of God's people. God's election, right? Uh, in Romans 9, it was Isaac, not Ishmael. Right? Jacob, not Esau. Are these the women through whom this story of God's people is going to be carried on? This woman here at this well. And we start to see a picture. It's not so much that Jesus has a romantic interest in this woman. It's that God is pursuing a woman who is about to become the first missionary to bring a half breed group of people into relationship with himself in a new covenant through faith in the Messiah as Jesus reveals to this woman. He's the first person that Jesus reveals who he is to, is this woman. He doesn't tell anyone he's the Messiah before her. Here's the crazy thing. Uh, Rachel, Rebecca, Zipporah, presumably all young chaste virgins ripe for marriage good stock for God to choose his family this woman Jesus says go get your husband she says I have no husband he says you're right you've had five husbands and the man you're now living with is not even your husband right she might have volunteered that information in initially if she suspected Jesus was pursuing her and said, she's like, I don't have a husband, right? Uh, this is night and day different. Now, you could say it's, it's very possible that this woman was a victim. She got caught in a cycle, in a lower state of life, husband after husband, just a bunch of pigs, and she was a victim here. It might be entirely possible that this was a horrible person to be married to. We don't know. But we know she was married five times, which was almost unbelievable in that time period. Like, for that to happen is almost fiction, okay? It just, it just never happened. And this is who God is pursuing as the initial messenger, missionary, matriarch of his new kingdom people. It's like... He pursued his bride, and she was good. But then she left him, broke the vows again and again and again. So he gave her what she wanted, and he said, you can go marry whoever you want. And after finding herself a half-breed, disgraced, five marriages later, completely hopeless, God shows up. He says, you want to offer me a drink? <laughs> Let's talk. There is hope. There is hope. God loves 
divorced people. Repentant divorced people. Ephesians 5, 25 through 33 says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Jesus gave it all, left it all, so that God could remarry, marry anew his bride. So whatever you've done, whatever you've been through, whatever situation you find yourself in, it's never too late to come back to him, to be cleansed by him, to be washed by him and renewed and refined and remade. If you find yourself in a difficult marriage situation, talk to someone about it, because I don't think I've solved anything here for you. We've made it complicated. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament law of marriage and divorce based on four vows, faithfulness, support with food, clothing, and love. We've talked about how abuse is the extreme end of breaking that vow. Marriage should be lifelong, and repented broken vows should be forgiven. But divorce is allowable in the context of Scripture if they stubbornly and unrepentantly carry on breaking vows. And remarriage is allowed after a divorce based on these biblical grounds. But a remarriage where the grounds are unbiblical is adultery because what God has joined together you can't separate. I think Jesus wants us to keep coming back to the heart of the matter. Where is your heart in this? Are you asking the question, when is it okay to divorce? Maybe I'm not satisfied here. If that's the case, that's the wrong question. Jesus is saying the heart of the issue is God has joined this together and made you one flesh. What are you doing to pursue that oneness? What are you doing to work at it, to repent, to change, to accommodate, to, to hear each other, to get help, to get counseling, whatever it is. What are you doing to avoid an adulterous heart? That's the question. But the most important thing here, as we've talked about, is how God sees you, his church. Whether you're going through a difficult marriage, whether you've been divorced, whether you are the divorcee or the one, um, the one who's had to turn someone away or the one who is unrepentant right now, 
There is no place in this story, if you are willing to relent and turn to God, there is no place in this story for which God is not involved. He can restore anything. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for the cross. I want to thank you, God, that you have made a way to restore anyone back to yourself. And because of that, because of the power that raised Jesus from the dead, I believe that there is nothing too big for you to accomplish, no marriage too broken to heal. And yet, Lord, there are provisions for the reality that we live in the time that we do and the brokenness that we have. And maybe someone is in this position today where they're dealing with a spouse and they're hanging on for all they're worth. But there is that unrepentance and that inability to change. And I pray for wisdom for that person, Lord. Not selfishness. Not just, I just pray for a heart that's broken for that other person. I just pray, God, that you would provide wisdom, the, the ability to know how and when uh, to work on restoration and also how to know when it's time to call it, to do as you have done, to say you are free because I just, there's nothing else I can do. Lord, we just pray that you would be all over that. And if there's anything that I've said that doesn't honor you in this way, that has miscommunicated your words, Lord, I just pray that it's you who would be heard above all. But Lord, we do, I know that you do not desire people to be trapped, trying to hold on to the letter of a rule, hanging on to a sham of a marriage that has long been broken. There are only two options, healing and restoration or dismissal. It cannot stay as it is. So God, I pray for breakthrough. I pray that there would be now a change, healing. There's more to be said on this. Paul speaks about it more in 1 Corinthians. Didn't have time to go there. I pray that we would pursue your wisdom in these matters wholeheartedly with your will as our own will and not just our own. Um, it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We want to thank you again for joining us today. And we want you to know that we love you and God loves you. And you always have a place here at Anacortes Christian Church. If you made a decision for Christ today, or you just want to talk with someone, we would love to talk with you. We have a really easy contact form on our website that you can fill out. Just go to anacorteschristian.church and scroll to the bottom of the page. You'll see the Connect With Us button right there. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.